This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend. Ron may jump in later, but he's not here right now and Nate couldn't attend. So I pulled in Chris Oliver. Chris, thanks for coming on. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, I told him who was going to be on the show today and he was like, oh, heck yeah, I'll be there. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't even used View Component yet, but it's been on my list for quite some time. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, so today we have Joel Hawksley. Joel is a software engineer at GitHub. He works on the design system team, leading development on View Component, which is formerly known as Action View Component. So, Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We got some questions. Chris, you said you haven't used it yet? No, I haven't. It's been on my to-do list, and I talked a little bit with, how do you pronounce his last name, Dave Paola, about you know using View Component with bootstrap and stuff and kind of having like pre-made little things you could drop in. I think he went ahead and worked on that, which is awesome. But I haven't, I haven't had a chance to quite yet, but I think you do use it at CodeFund. We just started. So stuff and things have been happening at CodeFund and Nate has had to take more of an administrative role right now. And I gave this analogy to someone earlier. I think Nate was basically like, okay, I need Andrew to do something without me directing him for a little while. So he he took a Frisbee and he like threw it long and he knew I was going to go get it. He's like, yeah, why don't you look into adding view component? And I was like, sweet. So I've been uh, <laughs> busy ever since. I've been following the project since you gave the announcement at RailsConf last year, or at least talked about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm excited to ask you a couple of questions. Um, so is there anything you want to say about the project before we get to some of the stuff Chris and I wanted to talk about? Not too much in particular. I think that it's an exciting time for the project. We just hit a major milestone shipping V2. V2, amongst other things, the main kind of change we made is we simplified the APIs to the point where they are fully compatible with Rails 6.1, which means that the monkey patch we've been using inside the gem will no longer be necessary once you're on Rails 6.1. Not that monkey patches are totally bad, but it makes me uncomfortable to use one. We've been using one in production for the GitHub monolith for the past year, and that's something that we were hoping to get away from. And I'm excited that we're at the point where a month ahead of Rails 6.1, maybe a little bit more, we're in a position where we can remove that monkey patch once it launches. So view component was supposed to be in Rails 6.1. Can you speak a little bit to why it's not going to be anymore. And is that a good thing for the project moving forward? Is it bad? Like, what are your thoughts around that? Sure. So yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I've learned a lot. I think I should preface all of this with saying that this is my first time ever doing open source work ever, like in any capacity. So I've been doing all the baby steps of working in open source in like a pretty high visibility uh, capacity on this project. So one of the things I've been learning about is just, there's a lot of nuance that is far beyond like the skills of like writing code. And so the whole question is like, so what has happened since RailsConf? So RailsConf last year, I presented basically a prototype of what became ActionView component. 
And I got some positive feedback from folks, including folks on the Rails team that are outside of GitHub. We have two people on the core team at GitHub. So I got some feedback external to GitHub that was really good. So I moved forward with opening a pull request on Rails earlier than I had planned. So that was, I think it was June of last year. And that pull request started out when I first opened it with implementing the, basically lifting all the code out of our monolith and putting it into Rails. And that code was not super mature, especially in hindsight. Oh my goodness. In hindsight, it was not super mature. And I think that like, ultimately that was a mistake or maybe a misstep on, especially my part and the GitHub team's part, because while it was running in production, we hadn't really used it a ton and in a ton of different cases. We hadn't exposed a lot of like the complexity that was going to be necessary to do it right. So when we opened that pull request, the feedback we got was ultimately that it needed to be simpler, basically just adding a hook to Rails as a first step to see what else we might need Rails to do. And once we added that hook, that kind of became like the point of reference for development of the Rails portion of this architecture. So since then, we've iterated on that a little bit. There's been some tweaks. We've added support and controllers. Uh, There's probably some improvements we need to make that kind of adjust that interface. But I think ultimately, I'm really happy with where we've ended up because it's allowed us to continue to iterate really quickly on the library outside of Rails. And quite honestly, even now sitting at V2, I don't think it's mature enough to put in the framework as like a, as a gilded solution to this problem. So while I was really excited in June of last year to get it into Rails or like the, the possibility of getting into Rails, in hindsight, it probably wouldn't have been great for the project because we've learned so much since then. And more importantly, we now know how much more we have yet to learn and how much more the library needs to improve. And, you know, maybe a year from now, we're, we'll, we'll be on this podcast having a conversation about how the library has matured to a point. People have been using it in more Rails applications and the community is comfortable with it and the Rails team is comfortable bringing it in. But that's not the plan. The plan is to leave Rails, Action View specifically, and Action Pack with these hooks that allow you to pass objects into the render method instead of the existing you know, strings and symbols and hashes you can pass in today. And that allows other people to implement view component frameworks as well, which will only further help us understand what exactly this pattern can bring to the Rails conventions. I think that is a really good, mature answer. I know the day I saw that it wasn't going to be in Rails, I was, I was pretty bummed out, specifically because we at CodeFun ride as close to Rails convention pretty much for everything. So my concern when it wasn't going to be added into Rails is whether I was going to get the buy-in from my technical lead. And I did, obviously. I kept watching the library and it got to the point where I was like, I think this is ready. Like this has the things we need. I think I, I want to get moving forward with it. And then we just happened to have a perfect opportunity to start adding it in. So you guys are using view component at GitHub, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Extensively. How, like, how, how many components do you guys have out of curiosity, if you know, or can you give an estimate? I actually had to give this report to someone the other day. So I have very fresh numbers for you. Uh-huh. Uh, as of today, we have 126 components in the GitHub application. Of those components, 16 of them are implementations of our primer design system, and the rest are in our app directory. So the design system ones are in lib. 
They are not coupled to any of our domain concepts or any of our domain models. The ones in the application obviously are, and a lot of them are actually mappings from our domain models into the design system. So I can give you an example. Like we have, the design system provides a state component. That state component is a little badge that you use to visually communicate the state of something. You can think of that as what we use on the issues and pull requests. So the design system has a state component, but that has nothing to do with, as no reference to anything conceptually in our domain. So then in our application directory, we have two components, actually more, but two specific components that leverage that state component. We have a pull request state component and an issue state component. And you could think of those components as taking an active record object and turning it into a mapping around that design system component. This system of abstractions very helpfully has already been battle tested and just put through the ringer, been debated and bike shedded all around the world in the React ecosystem, which is great. It's kind of like a meta point, but that's been something that we've really leveraged at GitHub has been just read all of the long form articles people have written on React design patterns. We've been able to not necessarily use all of them, but a lot of them have stood the test of the translation back into the Rails ecosystem. And that's saved us a lot of time because we can just say, hey, the React people have done this for seven years and have realized that, okay, having application-specific components mapping to design-specific components is a good abstraction. And so far, that has mapped really well for us. That is really cool. So your primer style system is a React like library or whatever you want to call it, right? It has a few forms. So we have a CSS version. That's actually what is used in github.com is the CSS library. We also have a React components library. That components library uses styled system, which is CSS and JS. And we use that in our React code, which is a small but growing part of the UI that we build. So do you think at some point there will be a view component abstraction for primer 100% it's oh, on a road it's on a roadmap the one of the things i'm working on at github right now is helping to define kind of our next year or so vision for what we want our rails front end code to look like like what we want our templates to almost syntactically look like and some of the like larger scale technical refactorings we want to do and once we have that we will then part of that strategy is going to be building out some tools that enable the primer CSS library to work well with view components. We have some of those already, but adding to them. That's cool because I, I kind of think when I'm, when I was starting to implement view component, I was thinking about it in a react type way. And I've never coded react in production, but I really like the way they use components in react. And I kind of think about the UI in that way. And I basically in CodeFund have created like a quasi framework ish for developing in our front end with just helpers like card helper, card header, et cetera. So yeah, I'm excited to hear about that because what I would love to do is basically take that version of what I've kind of built and just map it one to one with view component, which is what I've started to do. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that. That's actually what we're seeing happening in our code base already is that we have some helpers that output HTML. That's not something that we're super proud of, but it points to the need for an abstraction like components. 
So having those in place sets you up to do a component migration for sure. So what are some things you should use components for, I guess? And what are some things like you should not, if that makes sense? Like what are some like great use cases for like a view component? Like I'll give you an example. You can tell me whether this is good or not. I was trying to create basically table components. So you have your table, your table head, your table body, table rows, table cells, table data. And I was trying to basically do that with view component. And I think I took it a little too far, but yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts around like kind of best practices and like where you should and shouldn't use these? I think this is an ongoing debate. First of all, both internally and externally, you see this happening in some flavors on the project repo. And I can tell you it's happening tenfold internally. What makes a good component is something that I think is something we can learn from the React side of things. Generally, the approach we've been taking is that the more reusable something is, the higher value it is. So one example I give in my uh, talk for RailsConf this year is we have a layout component. And that component encapsulates the very real complexity around even just displaying a sidebar and like a main content body in a responsive fashion that like is very tested and accessible and you name it. We use that component eight different places in the application. So it's taken something that was inconsistently implemented, often in a way that led to subtle bugs for users in different browsers and different devices and standardizes it. That's really high value. I think there's ultimately a spectrum of value for components. High complexity, highly reusable is obviously, I think, the the best place to be. It's like, what are the things that need to be tested very thoroughly, have a lot of edge cases, maybe things that are commonly misused. Like we have one example is we have a pattern where like you click on something and a modal pops up. That is what we call a details dialogue. There is a ton of work, a brilliant engineer uh, I work with, her name is Muan, has worked on, and she's done a ton of work in making this perfectly accessible. Like it's a very complex UI pattern. I think the, she originally made a partial it has 17 local variables to rent like possible ways to configure this partial. And that isn't like, that isn't like a necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. It's just, it captured the complexity of it. So when we refactored that to a component, it of course had 17 arguments in the initializer and we're like, wait, we need to, we need to do something about this. So what's great is that with components, you can write unit tests for them. So we wrote a ton of unit tests. And I think that that's where we start to see the benefit at this like, highly complex, highly reused under the spectrum is that you can run, write a ton of unit tests. I think we wrote 20 right off the bat. They run in 20 milliseconds each. So you're looking at 400 milliseconds. You have a half second addition to your test suite and you have 20 test cases for this complex view. And now we refactor. So we've refactored that component to be better and simpler and more robust. And that's something we couldn't do with the partial before. And that partial for reference, I think we use it 240 times in the application. So it's highly reused and highly complex. And that's like, that's probably like the gold standard. The other end of the spectrum though, is replacing a view. You can literally render components from a controller. The benefits certainly are fewer at that end of the spectrum, but they're, they're still there. You can think of like, even just from the testing perspective, like Rails doesn't give you unit testing capabilities for views. So if you just take that as the one benefit of the framework, I think that most code bases will see a lift from that. One example would be like, say you have a 
view that is highly complex. You have like a, maybe let's think of a contrived example, but say you have an object that has a state machine as an attribute in it. So it goes through a lot of states. If you're testing that in permutation properly, let's just say you have 10 states on your object, you're going to be writing 10 controller tests. And you're going to be making a request every time. You're going to be newing up all these objects. But that specific piece of the view might only need that state attribute. So if you make that a component, you can write 10 unit tests. You can write 20 unit tests. And it's going to be a lot faster. And in our experience, it's not that it's faster, but the tests are easier to write, which means you might actually write them. I think that at least in my experience in our code base, controller tests tend to bias more towards happy paths. And then especially once you get to like the integration level, like you're, you're really only writing happy paths. So you end up with an environment that is more conducive to writing better tested code, which even when you're just using it for something you're rendering once in one controller, you're seeing a, you're seeing a material benefit there. I will say that the component that I, I only added one, I've started working on more. I will say that that is the most well-tested area of the app basically at this point, because I, I, didn't quite TDD it, but almost. So yeah, I think as like we continue to add them, I think maintaining the always writing tests for them is going to be key. And one of the other things that makes it really nice is the fact that you have the ability to preview the components. I think that is key. So in terms of totally, and I agree with that. I think that the, so the thing, one of the things to think about, you had asked what like anti-patterns look like. First of all, this is something we should totally document on the readme for the repo because I'm realizing now this conversation is probably incredibly informative and is not documented anywhere. But in terms of anti-patterns, the biggest one that's actually up for debate today on Slack that I was just got off talking to some people about is data access. So it's, it's well in public. GitHub uses GraphQL internally for our views. Like when we're rendering, like we have... GraphQL fragment signatures for all of our ERB templates. And this allows our, when we're rendering a stack of potentially a combination of, you know, dozens of templates, we can build one GraphQL, effectively a query and retrieve all the data and send it back to where it needs to go. That's something we are starting to move away from doing. And at the same time, we're introducing components. So there's a lot of debate around whether components should be allowed to have queries that execute in them. The current thinking that we're working on is that the answer should be no. And that components, because they provide a strong layer of encapsulation, are a way that you could confidently, if you made that decision, say as an organization for now, decide that our components are not going to run queries. And the way we do that, we have code that can do this right now, and we're going to start to implement it more, is we have a, we have a global that's accessible in tests, and it's the number of queries that have been run on MySQL at that moment in time. So what, because you have access to that, you can query that in between executing a line of code. What that allows you to do is to say whether something ran queries or not. So we literally have a block that you can wrap any code in our entire test suite in that just says assert no queries. So you can literally do assert no queries, render component, end, and that will guarantee that that call to render the component did not touch the database. And one of the things we're debating right now is whether we should redefine the render and line test helper to have a certain no queries inside of it so that we basically are walling off our entire component implementation from the database. That's just one really exciting dimension of the project. Like I, there are other areas where you can use the encapsulation to do Ruby things that can give you some of that like higher level of confidence. But in the meantime, that's kind of like a debate around any patterns we're having is like, how do you like, what does it look like to have 
something that is not coupled to the request, not coupled to the database. It's been pretty fruitful so far. Makes it makes a lot of sense if you if you look at it the same way. You have React components, like they're never making queries inside of them. So as long as you pass in everything you need, you know, as props or state or whatever. I mean, I guess internal state and React component could be considered like a query in a sense, but. Yeah. And so, you know, in React apps, because everything's a component, you often do end up having like a parent component that does data retrieval. And that's honestly what we've kind of ended up with right now. We're migrating. We have a lot of view models. We have like a few hundred view models. And that's the, that's kind of like the project we're working on right now is slowly walking those to be view components and improving the view component library as we go, as we find, you know, new things that like the library doesn't support as that during that migration. But those view models often do run queries because that view model expressed everything that was needed to render all the children. So what we're finding is that there might be this middle ground where like you might have a component that does some querying and it knows about everything that like all of its children components need. Yeah, that, that makes even sense. That like, totally, even that I'm not totally sold on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of the, you know, you don't want a fat controller. So you have somewhere else you do your, your loading of data because you're not wanting to make all your queries in your index action or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of contain that somewhere. But yeah, that's interesting. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people in Rails seem to, once you hit a certain point of complexity, there's no guidance on that from Rails itself. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, this is going to be something that hopefully does give some guidance on how should we think about doing this at a certain point? Because there's a lot of, you know, don't want fat controllers or fat models, but then what? What do we do with our you know, their classes and things. Yeah. yeah. And the nice thing is, is that because these, I think that there's a certain level of like shiny object appeal to this library where like, it is a way to look at your view code in a different way. Like, I think that maybe the most beneficial part of working on this product has been for the company is that it's exposing a lot of complexity that was already there. It's turning things that weren't Ruby, they were, they were ERB, it's turning them into Ruby. And just that transformation alone is forcing a lot of conversations that we should have had a long time ago. And that fundamentally, I think, it forces you to think about things like fat models, fat controllers, you know, all these NA patterns that you're used to. And then realizing that like, well, we might have just shoved it all into ERB where we couldn't test it. So we didn't know it was a problem. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's a really common thing where you end up with, you you accidentally end up putting a lot of logic in your views or then you extract it to your helpers or whatever. And then you maybe don't test it or whatever. And like you were saying before, this gives you a way to unit test those partials effectively that you weren't going to unit test, you know, previously you might do a controller test, but you know, that not as much harder to set up. So it's interesting to approach it from that direction. It is. And you know, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned like testing partials through controllers because I think that's actually one of been it's been one of the more like broadly applicable things that's it's opened my eyes to doing this architecture has been that like the idea of a partial is it's reusable view code. But if you have to test that partial in every controller you include it in, you're really only reusing the partial. You're still duplicating your test coverage. And you know, in a small to medium-sized Rails app, you can probably deal with that, but the likelihood that you're testing all the correct permutations every time you use that partial is pretty slim. And 
the likelihood of that being the, tr- the case when you have 4,400 view files like we have in our monolith, very unlikely. And so you can, like I, I was pulling these stats the other day, we have 4,400 views, 3,000 of them are partials. Of the files that render, of the view files that render another file, they on average render three other files. So do you think that our controllers are covering all of those permutations of this code? Like if you had that same architecture, but fully in Ruby in your models directory, you'd go insane. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's really sobering to pull all of this into the Ruby world and realize what's going on. Yeah, for sure. I was just thinking, I, I, don't, I haven't used this yet, but how does the job, I know you support some kind of organizing stimulus controllers with a component or whatever. How do you look at the JavaScript part of those components? So there is some documentation in the README that I'm going to forget. I think it's Jared White added. <laughs> I feel terrible if that isn't him, if it wasn't him, but I think it was Jared White very recently added just a little bit to the README that describes some of the practices he has seen work putting JavaScript files and CSS files alongside view component, uh, Ruby, and template files. That is something we are not doing. And I need to be very clear that the reason we don't do it is primarily one of implied encapsulation. encapsulation. So what's great about view component is that it takes a template and limits its execution scope to the Ruby object it's associated with. Traditionally, Rails templates execute in a global execution scope, which means that every template is basically uh, a sibling instance method on ActionViewBase. That's awesome. And a lot of the benefits of the library come from the fact that we kind of draw that wall around the template. The problem is, is that when you put CSS and JavaScript next to that template, there is a very real implication that they are seeing some level of encapsulation benefit when there's little to none guaranteed. The example, I believe it was Jared, gave in that readme is pretty good. Like it at least uses some scoping and like the stimulus controller coupling is like pretty well encapsulated. But that's one of the reasons why the library today doesn't have any built-in support for CSS or JavaScript. And that the thing that the part of the readme that talks about the behavior is marked as experimental. That being said, our vision for what we're going to work on for the next year on this library internally likely includes at least our approach to solving that question. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's one thing, one issue I hit and I wasn't sure, I'm pretty sure it's some bootstrap thing that we're doing, but it was having trouble rendering like a toggle inside of the component. And it was some, for some reason, it was like printing the HTML for it. But I started looking because we use Stimulus Code Fund and I haven't needed to use any in these components yet, but yeah, I'm very interested to see. And that the example in the readme is very jarring, I'll say, like because it uses web components basically. Mm-hmm. And there, there, yeah, there are two that, examples. Like, yeah, there are two examples: one using web components and one using stimulus. Right. For what it's worth, we're using web components for our front end, so that that's why I was like very keen to have that example in there. Is that that's that's probably the direction we're going to end up going, if I had to guess at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. The, it, I would definitely encourage everyone listening to go look at these examples because I, the Web Component 1 example specifically very much reminded me, like I was like, it looks like something someone just pulled out of a React app. And at first when I looked at it and before I actually read the code, I was like, did someone just paste something from a React app in here? Like, what is this? 
but yeah, it's it's super interesting, and I'm very curious to watch that kind of continue to evolve. Um, yeah, yeah, and and generally, I I think it's probably been pretty clear with how we've handled contributions in the repo. We're we're generally leaning towards being more permissive of people introducing new ideas to the project as long as we make it clear that there are things we're still thinking about because. Because it's in the readme now, we're talking about it and people are going to hear it on this podcast and they're going to come in and tell us how our approach is maybe misguided, short-sighted, et cetera, et cetera. And I would love nothing more than to have some clarifying perspective on that because it's something that it's on the horizon. It's a problem we know that we can probably at least tangentially solve with this pattern, but we don't have any experience and I'd love to see other people try. That's interesting. You said this is your first open source kind of management project, right? Yeah, this is the first time I've ever... I don't think this, I think this is the first time I even got like a GitHub star on something I worked on. I bring that up because I think you're doing a really good job. Like watching your yeah. comments, you're always very encouraging and uplifting and inviting. And I think it, it, it... I work on a open source project and I have several open source projects that I would be surprised if anyone was using. But I do have one or two that are used a lot and I, I know Chris is all in that open source world. Yeah. And it's hard. It's it really is. hard when someone comes along and you're just like, dude, are you trying to be a douche or what? Like, why are you being like this? But it, and it I think one bad turn or like one one or two screw ups can really, you know, take a project down the wrong path in terms of how the community kind of views it, whether they consider it a welcoming space. And I think, I just want to say, I think you're doing a really good job of that. Well, thanks. I mean, to be honest with you, it's been really nerve wracking for me to work on this project because, you know, I work for GitHub. We are, we're, we're, we're literally running the app that you're looking at the repo on, like no pressure. Right. But at the same time, I will say, I need to make it very clear that I'm phenomenally well supported on this project. Well, you might only see me and a few of my colleagues openly contributing and like responding to issues and whatnot. Like behind the scenes, there are a lot more people that are working on the project internally and providing support and guidance to me. Like I can tell you, like what a t- like a typical week for me. I we so at GitHub we have like a few different levels of engineer. I am a senior engineer. We have staff engineers, principal engineers, distinguished engineers. There are three staff engineers that mentor me on this project: Aaron Patterson, Tenderlove, Katrina Owen, co-author with Sandy Metz, and uh, C. John Run. John, I, 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 I always butcher his last name, so I won't use. I won't even say it. But C. John Run. So I have really great support and guidance. And one of the things we do is we look at issues and talk about the best way to respond to them. We also have really great people internally that like, this is all they think about is like open source governance. So I am incredibly lucky to have that kind of support because it helps us create this welcoming environment. And I can be coached on, you know, how to handle these issues and to be able to say to someone to say, hey, when they they propose something I think might be wrong to know that the proper response is to say, why don't we open a PR? Like, let's have a discussion there. Give me some test cases. Like all these things that like can guide us towards something that is actually materially useful to the project. Because ultimately when people come into this space, they want to help. They have something to offer. And I think that even if they're going to give us an example of what not to do, that is valuable to the project. And having that documented where someone like tried it on an issue and then like try to write a PR, we have plenty of those skeletons sitting in the closed PRs and closed issues 
that are really great that when, so that when someone comes and asks the question again, I can say, hey, thank you for asking this question. Here's some prior art. Do you think you can improve on it? And it builds up this like knowledge base of like the history of the project that we've very quickly accumulated. I think we open sourced it in August. And like, even the question of like CSS and JS encapsulation has come up a couple of times. And now we have reference discussions uh, for that work. And it's incredibly handy. Yeah, those are, those are like key things that, especially with something kind of new uh, as an approach, like you'll see in the Webpacker gem all the time, like, why don't we do this by default or whatever? And it's like, well, we had a conversation about that before. And that's one of the things I really like about this project too. It's like, it's not just saying, here's what we've done at GitHub or extracting it. You guys can use it if you want. It's like a conversation of like, here's this thing we're working on. We're using it for these reasons, but you know, we can extract this and maybe learn some stuff from the way you guys are approaching things, which I think is what really makes this like a great project, the way you guys are approaching it that way. Cause it's like a collaboration with the community, not, and, and Rails has done this a few times lately, like pulling out action text or active storage. It's like, here's what Basecamp does for this, but we don't really have any other extensions or features that we didn't have. And those have left a lot of people like with conversations about how do we like fix this to make it support some of these other features we would like? Because there was never a conversation about that a whole lot. So that's one of the things that I really like about how you're doing view component. Yeah. And the, the cool thing is, is that I think because we've invested so much in that approach, we're seeing material benefits. Like, don't think that this is like an act of charity. Like, yes, it's open source. It's beautiful. Like, I love, it's so fulfilling to work on this project with people in the community and like, making it better, not just for us, but like we're seeing very real benefits to our work from that approach. And I think that that's something that needs to be underscored because a lot of people view doing open source work as like a one-sided affair where you're just like giving and not like, like you may be getting goodwill or a good reputation. I think GitHub has plenty of that already. Like obviously this is probably good for our company to have this kind of impression on the community, but We've also seen real benefits from contributions from the community. I think that at one point I was counting and like someone from GitHub was landing like one out of every four PRs. Like, whoa, right? Like, that's fantastic. We were getting like contributions that we were bringing back into our application. The most significant, I have to call out John Palmer, contributor from Boston, contributed the with content areas feature, which fundamentally increased like the value proposition of using the library. It brought like the abstraction to a new and more effective level that like literally I know that my boss's boss told our CEO about how we were like leveraging open source to like come up with this innovation that like is benefiting the community and benefiting like the way we architect our components internally. And that's like, that's kind of like the happy, like best example I think I've seen in a while of like the way this kind of all work to like benefit everyone. Yeah. And you're doing a really good job of like guiding people from like, okay, here's my issue that this library doesn't do blah, blah, blah. You're really good at guiding people like, okay, well, why don't you create a PR and then we can like discuss it in there. And it can be hard as someone who's tried to do this to get uh, people in the community, like to not just post their issue Mm -hmm. and then leave it at that and just wait for you to fix it. But to really work with them and guide them to, you know, 
collaborating on this tool and, you know, helping add their own ideas and, you know, which also makes you, you take partial ownership. Maybe ownership isn't a great way to word it, but, you know, to feel pride that like you've all, you've helped this project. Now you also feel like you can do it and you can do it Mm -hmm. more. You're going to be more willing to contribute. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to call that out that I think you're doing a really good job of kind of community management on that project. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's worth underscoring that like, for an open source project, at least in my experience, one of the best gifts anyone, anyone from the community can give me is a failing test. Like, just give me a failing test. We even do this. I was talking to someone internally like half an hour before we hopped on this call and they had found like a very real bug, probably in Rails that we need to fix ahead of 6.1 for this. And they're probably going to open an, a PR on the gem with a failing test. And it's just a, it's a total gift because they've reproduced it on their side and they're going to put it out in the public. The public's going to provide some feedback on it and we'll probably land up, end up landing a patch in Rails to fix it. And I think that that has been just like such a strong feedback loop for me that like once you get a few of those, you're just like, okay, when someone leaves a comment or an issue to say like, hey, can you at least get me a PR showing me it's broken? And then maybe I'll hop on a Zoom. I'm happy to hop on a Zoom with people anytime and just pair on it and see if we can get it working. Um, but yeah, it's been... It's been phenomenal to have that feedback loop and to learn that that's like a way to like get things done. I'm very fortunate to have the time. Like this is my full-time job at GitHub is working on this project in some capacity. So I do have that time to like, not just like shoot an issue down. I can say, hey, let's like actually talk this through because it's, it's like what I'm supposed to be working on. Yeah, and I think the, you know, the, you cut through the noise pretty easily that way when you're like, Okay, do the, if, if you really want this fixed, like, uh, you know, do the work, give us a failing test. Then we know that it's not somebody just complaining about something that they maybe did wrong or whatever. They put a little effort in, you know, give you the failing test. And then you know that, like, it's not something you're going to waste too much time on, which is often like uh, a thing I think open source projects can struggle with is like, you don't want, like the rails issues are probably full of like beginners, like, Oh, you know, my routes don't work or whatever. And it's like, how do you filter those out between your regular support stuff and things that are actually issues that need addressing without having a whole team of people. It helps to have a pattern like that to be like, okay, these are things that immediately become higher priority because someone put the effort in to help us reproduce. Yep. And also those those uh, failing tests, they're also just like, I would almost call them like lures because that person opens the failing test. You're more likely to get someone else than to come in and look at it because it's like, it's actionable. Like, I think that that's kind of the, one of the lessons I've learned, like meta lessons managing this project is biasing towards trying to figure out what the action is that needs to be taken. And I think a lot of that comes honestly from working at GitHub for two years now where we're very distributed and very async that like if you're in an environment where your communication with someone or like with other people is generally synchronous, there's less of an incentive to when you communicate with someone to like come up with what you're actually going to do next. But like I have plenty of colleagues that I communicate with on a one message per day basis because they're in Tokyo or, you know, Eastern Europe or something. And I have to make it very clear what I'm asking of them and like what I think the possible outcomes of that message should be. So I think that you might see that on the issues where like I'll comment on something, but then I'll very clearly give the person like a choice on what the next steps should be. And they can kind of pick from those things. So 
we've talked about it a little bit, but what's what's next for View Component in terms of you know the future, the your vision of it? Like, what are your if you had like a dream of something it could become? Like, like what's what's next? I think that what we're kind of on is like this really. We're on a, we're on like a, you can imagine like we're like climbing a hill, like a never ending hill and the hill is getting maybe a little bit steeper as the adoption is getting higher. This is going for both internal and external adoption. As the hill gets steeper, the problems get harder or gnarlier or sneakier. And I think that that's kind of like the thing that I'm trying to balance and keep under control right now is that the, the, the maturity of the library is in parity with its adoption level. So as more people adopt it, it needs to become more mature. And this goes both inside our company and in the community at large. Like, I think it's now at the point where, I mean, we're using it in production extensively. I think anyone could use it in their Rails app, but know that like you're going to find problems because it hasn't been used that much. So I think that our vision is just like to keep climbing the curve at a rate that is, that we feel like we're staying ahead of it. Like, so I kind of touched on it earlier with the data access thing, but like, as we start migrating more of our code to use components, we have to solve the data access problem. Like there needs to be a best practice. We need to be able to put something in the project readme that says, hey, this is how you think about how active records should interact with components. That's something really we really haven't had to face before. And all I can hope is that the project, that the adoption of the project doesn't get ahead of the innovation. Because if it does, we're going to end up with a lot of bad code. So a lot of what the team that I work on on GitHub is doing is we are constantly refactoring. Like the number of linters I've written, I like write a linter every week that literally just takes us from a previously established practice to a new established best practice for the same thing, whether it's like how we write a specific type of test or how we name things or what we're inheriting from, like all these specific things. Know that this is changing really on like a week or every other week basis in our code base. My fear is that like, we'll get to a point where like people, like I always want people to be able to copy and paste any component in our application. And I feel like in the end, that's my vision for the project is that for the next year, every week of the year, someone can copy and paste any component in our app. And I won't be like, at least completely embarrassed about the result of that action. Because that's how a lot of people learn about these new patterns as they go in and they see the use of it in the code base and like, hey, as linters tell me to use this thing, I'm going to go copy this one that's in an area of the code base I'm somewhat familiar with and use it as a template for what I'm doing. And making sure that process goes well, I think is one of the most critical things when developing a framework like this, is making sure that when people see examples, they are well vetted and just as good as you can do. And that's something that really honestly weighs on me like day to day on this project is just like, okay, are we gonna, how are we going to embarrass ourselves this week? Like, Let's not get too far ahead of, let's not let this thing run away from us at this point. Yeah. And kind of to add on to that, one thing that I think as a community that we need to be able to like help you all with that is producing examples or like, because I, I've heard several companies say that they're using it, but their code isn't open source. So we have no idea how they're using it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I'm really excited about as we start adopting it more at CodeFund is being able to say, well, we're using it. Here's the code. Here's how we're using it. And just helping provide like reference to seeing it in apps and watching more people write tutorials on it, seeing example apps, watch you know the community kind of provide code documentation 
of how it can be used and leveraged. Yeah. And I think that like, I'm always, I struggle with some of these like technical debates around a lot of these patterns because they often, they often end up in a very theoretical space that I think that is ultimately one where, where discussions are not hugely productive, which is why, like, for example, like on the gym, we bias towards a PR, you bias towards a, a test versus saying like, what if this like hand wavy thing was this way? Open a PR, let's talk about like a concrete baby step we can take. The thing that I am wary about and the, and the reason we need to open source, like the components we are all working on is that you, I think you learn so much more from actual complex examples. Like this is a fundamental thing I believe about learning programming that like Rails new teaches you so little compared to Rails Rescue. So I got my programming career start at an agency called Mojotech based in Rhode Island. They have an office out here in Colorado as well. And Mojotech at the time especially was taking on Rails projects that needed help. They were having scaling issues. And I rotated through like five or six of these projects in the two and a half years I was at the company. And I feel like I got like six years of experience working at that company. Because I wasn't like building greenfield applications. I was going in and seeing how Rails scaled and seeing how you mitigated those things because those are the lessons that helped you use the Rails patterns properly. Like it's really easy to add the first five instance methods to a model. I don't even know how many instance methods we have on our user model, but it could probably be numbered in the thousands. Which, which end of the spectrum are you really going to learn how to be a Rails engineer from? You're not going to learn a ton after your first couple months or so doing Greenfield's Rails apps. And I think that that's where like, I mean, I need to call, I need to like follow my own word. We really need to open source really the most complex things we're doing at GitHub because until we do that, A, I don't think the community will fully see the benefit of the pattern because it gets better the more complex of a space you're working in almost by nature of the inspiration for the project. But it could also be hurt by overly simplistic examples. Like I think the example component, even in the readme has like one argument, which is like, it's cool. You can write a unit test for it. And the example is like 20 lines, but like, let's see a component where the template's like a hundred lines and the class is like a hundred lines and the unit test has like 30 cases. People are going to learn a lot more about the value of this pattern when they see things like that. Yeah. It's stimulus. Sure. Stimulus has had the exact same problem. Like their examples are like a copy and paste, you know, or a copy button. And Yeah, a lot of people look into it, but when you only see those as your examples that are like one-liners more or less, you don't understand a lot of the intricate things like in your JavaScript, how do you make, do you communicate between those stimulus controllers by calling them directly or do you like generate JavaScript events and then Mm -hmm. listen to those and those those sort of approaches like really make you wrap your head around like, oh, in theory, when I see it, it could be useful as an approach. But when you see a complex example and how simple stimulus will make it, and you're like, whoa, there's a lot I can do with this. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be the exact same thing for view component, I would imagine. Because I saw the same thing. And I was like, oh, cool. I could wrap modals and stuff, you know, and in, in components. But really, you you do need those like, big examples to see like, oh, this helped us. And probably as well, like the 
iterations of a component would be interesting to see. Like, here's our first version of it and how we refactored something into it. And here's what it is today and how we went from that to something more complex. Oh, for sure. I think an analogous example, I think we could probably all agree that one of the most important skills for a Rails engineer to have in general is good data modeling, like understanding good database design. I've seen so many frustrating examples of teaching database design when some of the best educational tools are free and open source. And you know what those tools are? The dump of the stackoverflow.com schema. Like you don't learn a lot about database design looking at like two tables in an example tutorial. You learn a lot by like seeing what a database dump looks like in production. I think that like we might be touching on something that is maybe fundamentally missing from the software world, which is concrete production examples as a way of educating. Like, I think that that is honestly like, I'm going to be straight up with you guys. Like working at GitHub is such a phenomenal experience as an engineer because we are using Rails in a very vanilla way at insane scale. Like there's really not a lot of point in me getting on Google because nothing's going to be relevant. But then there are all these people at work that are working on GitHub at this scale and are solving complex problems. Like I think that that's ultimately where such high value comes in learning as an engineer. And I would love to hear people reach out out to this podcast and say, hey, there's actually this, this site that just does case studies. Like, I think one of them is, is it highscalability.org or highscalability.net? Whatever, there's a high, the high scalability site. That site alone has done more for my success in engineering interviews than any other resource, bar none. Because it's actual stories of solving actual problems in production. I can think of one that was like, it was like how to do database migrations with zero downtime at like web, web scale, whatever web scale is, but like, you know, 10 million concurrent users. Having that answer was way more informative than like anything about like how the Rails DB migration flows, you know, works. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's, I guess it's just tricky because oftentimes that's like proprietary code that you can't share necessarily. And that, I, I guess, makes it harder. Yeah, I wish there was, like, some sort of precedent, though. Like, obviously, I've tried to be very open in this discussion we're having today about, like, like what things actually look like inside our application. And it's a very calculated conversation, though, because, like, there are a lot of things I can't share for whatever reason. And that hurts. Like, there are so many things I would love to be able to talk about, but I'm not comfortable or, like, it wouldn't be proper. And I think that, like, you know, if you think like in a very meta sense about what's going on in our industry, there's a lot of people trying to solve the same problem. And just think about how much better off humanity would be if we were all working on these problems together. And I think that that's like what open source is just like a small taste of. Like we had a little micro discussion earlier about how like the view component library has made the GitHub application better. That's what we want out of open source. It's not a gift. It's like actually like there's a win-win benefit in the like to humanity. Like, I, I mean, one I, one I joke about all the time, I've got a lot of smart friends and some of them are working on like computer vision. And one of them was going to go to a big cloud company. And the cloud company went to build a competitor to an AWS service. And it made me realize that he was literally going to go and start a new team to, re, to try and rebuild a competitor to something our, AWS was already doing. And just thinking about like the amount of time and money and everything that was going to go into that effort when it wouldn't be like, providing a huge net benefit, provide, except for like maybe some competition to AWS, which is frankly really needed. But you see this in spaces like self-driving cars, for example. How many companies are trying to build self-driving cars right now? 
you might have dozens of teams of engineers that are going out and writing similar, if not identical code. So viewing open source as a way to kind of collectively capture best practices, I think is, I think that something the Rails ecosystem does better than almost any other programming ecosystem I've seen. I think that generally we are as Railsists and Rubyists more likely to share what we're learning with other people. We are all still employed. Our companies are not out of business. I don't, I haven't seen any negative effect of that. So it makes it really hard for me to like see these other areas and other industries where there isn't that culture of sharing out of fear of like negative business repercussions. Like it's, it's, it definitely makes you want to like stay in the, in the Ruby and Rails landscape for sure. Yeah. I think that that might be a great way to kind of wrap this up. Cause I think that was a really, that was a really good kind of talk about, you know, open source is important. GitHub is open sourcing things. We're all, we should all be open sourcing things if we can. And, you know, giving the community more examples, more things to build on more, more examples of what not to do, for instance, or like, you know, here's our app. It got way out of hand. Like we forked rails and since and things like that. So Chris, is there any other questions you have? Not that I can think of while we were talking. It did remind me of that whatever, I don't know what happened on the rails conductor stuff, but it would be really cool to have action view or action view component now as a thing that you could preview inside of the Rails conductor UI and development. Yeah, for now we're going to tell you. you. You can do that. Yeah, yeah. So I might, I might contribute that or something. No, no it's I mean, already like done. Already. Oh, is it done? It's nice. just, well, it's, it's, I've never actually heard of the term Rails conductor being used in production Rails. I thought that was something that was being worked on as a more full-fledged feature. Is that the case? Yeah, DHH started a PR for Rails 6.1 that I don't think has been touched much since then, but it was like, you know, you have the mailer previews in development Mm -hmm. and it's basically just extending that with some other, you know, ways to preview stuff in development. So, And that's what view component previews do. Juan Manuel was the engineer who worked on it, but he basically copied and pasted the extra mailer stuff and changed some names and it works for us. Perfect. Yeah, that's what. That's pretty much exactly what I would have done. So <laughs> nice, great. I don't need another project, so that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joel, is there anything cool. else you want to say about the project? No, I would love to. I guess just that I would love to see more people give it a try in their applications and file issues and hopefully pull requests. I would like that too, so I can still not borrow <laughs> code from you all because <laughs> I don't want to re-implement everything. It would be nice to see some more examples out there. So yeah, if you're listening to this, that's your homework assignment. Create some components and tweet them at us or share them on GitHub so we can we can see and the community can continue to grow and evolve. Cool. Joel, where can people find you online? I pretty much only maintain one presence and it's uh, just a GitHub pages site, hawksley.org, H-A-W-K-S-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Cool. Well... Joel, thank you so much for agreeing to come on in such short notice. Uh, I think this was a really, really good conversation. Got down to some topics that I haven't heard talked about. And that was my hope for kind of getting you on here. And of course. Chris, thank you for subbing in. Yep. Anytime. And this has been another episode of the Ruby Blend. And we will catch you all again next week. Thanks. Bye, guys. See ya. See ya.
This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.